Hey everyone, welcome to the Them Before Us podcast. This is Jen Friesen. I'm one of your hosts. And today we have a fantastic conversation for you. We are joined by Emma Waters. Emma is a research associate in the Richard and Helen DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family at the Heritage Foundation. Emma, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, Jen. Thanks for having me on. Um, I have a lot I want to get to, including an article that just was posted today. Well, I don't know when people are listening, but uh, posted here at the end of December about Michigan's new surrogacy bill that's kind of making its way through the state. But first, I'd love to just hear a little bit more about your background. How did you get involved with research? How did you get involved at the Heritage Foundation? How did you get connected to Katie or them before us? Yes, absolutely. And I am a huge Them Before Us fan, so it is an honor to be on with you all today. Um, So my journey into family policy research and surrogacy research really started in COVID era 2020. Um, All of my internships had been canceled or put online, and I was studying public policy and biblical and theological studies at my university. And my professor said that we could do a directed study and I could pick any topics that I wanted with a focus on public policy. And so I picked a few different topics, but my final research paper for the year was focused on marriage and family structure studies with an emphasis on remedial policy. So basically, it's looking at what role does marriage have in child and adult well-being outcomes? Um, Do different family structures have different impacts on children? What do we know from the data? And that really was this light bulb moment for me where I realized that not only do we have countless studies that actually can show us in hard data that there are differences for children and adults based on the family structure, based on their um, decision to marry or cohabitate or never marry and bring children into the world, but also that there were a lot of policy initiatives that we um, have used and that we can use to actually encourage these outcomes that align with well-being um, for both children and adults, and that we all have a duty to do that, right? Um, And so we don't need to agree, we don't need to be shy, um, but we need to really come to the marketplace of ideas um, ready to fight for the best outcomes that we see from the data, that we see in policy. And so from there, um, my time in this space just really skyrocketed. So I had an internship actually working with the Heritage Foundation after that. I did internships with the American Enterprise Institute a fellowship with them. And then I started working for a podcast called the Realignment Podcast that looks at technology policy and changes in that space. And that's really when I became convinced that one of the most important questions for my generation, and this is in like 2020, 2021 that I was working with them, was the question of what it means to be human. And that question of what it means to be human was not one that could be separated from the question of technology, but indeed was being necessarily shaped and impacted and influenced by this growing technology that frankly, we didn't really understand. So I was helping on the podcast and writing show notes for all of these thinkers who were working in technology. And one of the recurring things was, this is so new, this is so new, we're still gathering studies. And so after graduating, getting a job, um, after about a year in DC, I started working here at the Heritage Foundation in summer of 22. And when I came aboard, I had actually just finished reading um, Katie's book, Them Before Us. um, And it really just brought so many of the things that I'd been thinking about, so many of the studies that I had read into focus. And I, based on her book, based on other things I was seeing on state and federal levels, I just felt so um, convicted and, and certain that this question of reproductive technology, what it means to be human as it relates to our forms of conception, Um, was a really big issue that um, was only going to grow in prominence. And it was something that previously Heritage did not have a scholar devoted to. 
Um, but I thought that one of the largest conservative think tanks in the United States really should be focused on. Um, so when I came aboard, that was my pitch for let's do reproductive technology. Let's think about how it influences uh, child well-being, how it influences adult well-being. And long story short, that's, um, yeah, that's how we got to where we are today. And so after being on the job for a little bit, I got connected with Katie through one of my coworkers here, and she has been a dear friend and mentor and colleague in the space ever since. That's awesome. That's really cool to see kind of how your journey weaved through different interests and uh, the things that are popping up. And it does feel like we're going to talk specifically about surrogacy quite a bit today. It does feel like that technology in particular has just really popped up in, I mean, especially we see a lot of celebrities. We're seeing a lot of gay men, both celebrities, but also we've talked about quite a bit sort of political pundits and people who would otherwise sort of identify as libertarian conservative are still engaging in some of these technologies. I read, you use that phrase in one of your articles, I I read this idea that it's kind of the wild west of the medical field or kind of the technology. And when I'm chatting to people, I made this comment in a previous episode, you know, if I'm sitting across from someone, I don't know their background, I don't know their po political background, et cetera. And they're like, well, what do you do? What's done before us? And you kind of want to be a little bit careful because I'm, I'm not sure what they have engaged in or what their thoughts are. But one of the big ways I talk about it is I say, I think our technology has exceeded our ethical considerations of it. We just want to help people ask the ethical questions. Hey, someone who came from a sperm donor might have a hundred half siblings. And when you present that to someone, even if they're very liberal, even if it's Seattle, and maybe they're like, I think sperm don donations are great, but they might never, it's never occurred to them that that's like a potential health crisis. You know, someone in your high school might have 50, you know, 20 half siblings in their high school. So it's pretty cool to think that coming this route, hey, let's ask some ethical questions is kind of a, a good starting place, regardless of the political side. Right. No, you're absolutely right. Because one of, I mean, as I'm sure you and listeners have talked about at some point, there are no federal laws that govern surrogacy at all. It is only a state level issue. And the way to your point about it being a very permissive structure, the way that states have typically handled it is if we have the technology, we should do it. And in most instances, they're not necessarily waiting on laws to um, regulate it, to figure out what good moral and ethical um, guidelines are. So some states like California are incredibly permissive um, and almost everything is sanctioned and almost everything goes, but there are a lot of states where they actually just don't have laws on the books either way. So usually a court will legitimize their surrogacy contract, but there are no um, requirements one way or the other, which again, when you're thinking of just like, regardless of if you're pro-surrogacy for pay, pro-altruistic um, surrogacy or not at all, there are just a lot of considerations that we should keep in mind because the question of how it impacts society on a larger scale is one that I don't think it's been adequately asked in this space. So we can talk about individual person here, individual person there, but then the question of like, okay, what does the whole nation look like who has embraced surrogacy? How does that change our values, our perceptions of children, our view of marriage? Those are all questions, regardless of where you fall, that like really need to be asked and need to be studied, um, both on the scientific side as well as policy. Let's kind of define, I guess, for people, hey, maybe they haven't gone back. Uh, Katie and I did an episode on surrogacy that was like based on our chapter. But, you know, some people are just jumping in and they just listened to the most recent one. So let's kind of start with what is surrogacy and especially let's di uh, differentiate between altruistic and then commercial, I think were the two that you used. And then maybe kind of 
go into as a starting point, culture sort of thinks surrogacy is fine as long as, you know, some people will say as long as they're sort of, it's the woman is, it's not being done against her will. Okay. It's fine. There's no problems, no harm. That's kind of the starting place. So let's, let's start there. Yeah. Okay. So for definitions, um, surrogacy is anytime another woman gestates and births a child for another couple. In traditional surrogacy, the surrogate is also the biological mother of the child, but those instances are incredibly rare or actually illegal in a lot of states because of the obvious conflict of interest um, that exists there between the surrogate mother also being the biological mother of the child. And so then gestational surrogacy is when the surrogate is carrying an embryo of a child that she is not related to at all. And so um, commercial surrogacy or surrogacy for pay is when the woman is not only being paid or not only being reimbursed for medical fees for any time off work for maternity clothes, nutrition needs, that sort of thing. But she's also being paid an additional sum of money that can range from anything from 25,000 to $70,000 in the United States. Um, and that's kind of the conservative estimate. And then altruistic surrogacy is surrogacy where the mother is not being paid the additional fee, but she is being reimbursed for any um, lost fees. Um, and that can still be in the thousands of dollar range. And generally people think of that as like a sister volunteering for um, her sister and their husband who are infertile or something like that. Notably, altruistic surrogacy only makes up about 2% of surrogacy contracts. 98% is surrogacy for pay, which really pushes back on the notion that surrogacy is primarily fueled by altruistic desire to help. Certainly many surrogates love being pregnant, want to help another family, but the presence of the financial gain, um, financial motivations cannot be avoided in this conversation. Um, and the fact that 98% of these contracts include the financial gain uh, really speaks to that point. Um, yeah, and so to your point, when it comes to the cultural side of this, I think that you're right that many people see it and they say, okay, uh, this couple can't have children or does not want to have children themselves. And so this is a really good thing because there wasn't a baby and now there's a baby and yay, babies, babies are good. Um, and even conservatives, even Christians can tend to have a very simplistic view of this process and think, well, if it ends in the birth of a live baby, then this is a good thing. And if someone wants a baby, which is almost an inherent desire, I think, for, for most people, most couples desire to bring a child out of that union. Um, I, I think a lot of people think that it's something that you shouldn't deny, um, that it's almost a right for adults to have. Um, and again, if you have a picture of these loving parents who've done everything they can to have a child, that would make sense. Um, but of course, this overlooks all of the ethical concerns within um, the reproductive technology industry, within future fertilization, the number of embryos that are tested for certain traits, tested for the sex of the baby, um, who are destroyed if they aren't the quote ideal or desired child that the parents want, um, the number of embryos that are frozen, um, not to mention all the concerns within surrogacy itself, where you're paying a woman to emotionally distance herself from the child within her. You're paying a woman to give you her child, which by a lot of definitions is baby cell. We, I think many people have made this point, but the big difference, the only difference between 
a legitimate commercial surrogacy contract and a baby selling um, violation that will have you in federal, uh, at least in violation of federal law, is the timing of the contract itself. So if you sign the contract before the child is conceived um, in a surrogate, then you're totally in the clear, it's a legitimate contract. If you sign the contract, even the day after she, the surrogate has conceived, then you're in violation of baby selling. So the line between these two things is just so, so close that it really is a difference in degree, not a difference in kind between surrogacy and a legitimate contract. Um, and the sort of contracts that the surrogate signs have a host of problems too. One, there's a reduction of fetus clause um, where the intended parents have the right to request that the surrogate have an abortion for whatever reason at any point in the pregnancy. And some of the biggest scandals that we've seen come out of California have been um, over this very issue. And then you also have the question of, is the surrogate really free? Um, is she really her own person? Um, these contracts can uh, dictate uh, what she eats, what sort of activities she engages in. If she's married, it can uh, even dictate how often she um, is with her husband sexually. This is are incredibly invasive contracts that can really dictate a lot of their lives. And then of course, when it comes to child well-being and outcomes for the child, the surrogate is his mother. This is the only mother this child has ever known. Um, the gestational bond is deep and strong. And so when that child is removed from his or her surrogate mother, this is a total world shifting moment for the child who does not have the ability to emotionally or logically process what's happened. And so those are just a few of just a few of the things that are sort of embedded in surrogacy itself that I think a lot of people culturally don't think of. But to your point earlier, when you sort of bring up and just start teasing out some of the underlying um, requirements of a quote unquote successful surrogacy agreement, I think a lot of people realize like, oh, this is a this is a bit more complicated, a little less sound than we thought it would be. Right. Yeah. Two points stand out to me as you're talking about that. So it, it's very fascinating to me that they use conception as a marker for whether or not, okay, because in a lot of our cultural conversation about life, when does life begin? When is it a baby? When is it a fetus? Right. All these different words we try to throw around. A, a lot of people are justifying abortion, for example, up until whatever at least until the second trimester or within the second trimester, because they're saying, well, it doesn't, it's not a human or it's not a baby or whatever. So it's interesting that in terms of law for selling, they're using conception as it feels a little like, okay, you guys are trying to have it both ways. And the second thing is the idea. I remember reading this and in, in chatting with Katie fetal reduction. Was that the, the nice, the super nice way to say, you know, killing a baby. The, um, you know, a woman, let's say she's surrogate and she becomes pregnant with two, basically they can obligate you to abort, right? I mean, the contract says we can tell you, you have to abort. But now again, that flies a little bit in the face of the idea of abortion is a woman's, this is right to choose. She should be able to do or not do there. Yes. Yeah. Speak to those things. Yeah. Well, I was going to say this second point is where I think some of the massive problems or massive legal inconsistencies um, with surrogacy exist. And actually Carmel Richardson just did a fantastic uh, journalistic investigation at Compact Magazine. And, and she looked into some of these inconsistencies. And so this is what's so complicated. Technically by law, the surrogate has um, complete autonomy over herself and over the baby within her, as long as the baby is within her. 
as soon as the baby is born, legally, the parents have complete rights over what happens to the baby. And so this is where it gets complicated. And I've talked to a few scholars in California who, who have agreed with this, but technically, while most contracts have a reduction of fetus clause that says the intended parents can require the surrogate to give birth, based on other laws that govern surrogacy, technically the surrogate does have complete jurisdiction over the baby while the baby's in her womb. So she doesn't have to have an abortion. She herself is not bound by law. Now, what it means is that the parents can threaten not to pay her or to only pay her part. So a lot of times it becomes a financial coercion where the parents are like, please get an abortion. She says no. And they're like, okay, well then you've just forfeited the last $50,000. And why did she do this except to, in many cases, gain money from it, right? Like this is a way she's getting it. So then a lot of times, uh, the women feel compelled to get the surrogate, to get the abortion or have wasted going through all the hormonal treatments, um, implantation, early pregnancy. And so it's really complicated. So if you think of the case over the summer in California, where the surrogate mother was diagnosed with a really aggressive form of pregnancy and wasn't going to be able to carry the baby to term, the intended parents who notably were from another country, then asked her to get an abortion, um, even though the baby could have been born around 32 to 33 weeks, they did not want to deal with any of the health complications and develop physical or mental developmental issues that could come from that. So they wanted to, the baby to be aborted. Now she opposed this, she refused to abort the baby. And so she carried the baby to term for as long as she could. But when it hit the point that she had to start cancer treatments or else risk her own life, um, they induced labor and she gave birth to the baby. Now, the moment the baby came out of her, she no longer had any legal rights over it. And so the intended parents chose to withhold any treatment for the baby, effectively allowing it to die, um, which is incredibly heartbreaking to say the least. Um, but that's just how complicated and again, inconsistent the surrogacy law is. And so I think the way to frame this in a way that most people are sympathetic to is that on the one hand, if intended parents are paying or have contracted for pay or not, with a surrogate to birth a child, then that would seem to give the intended parents the right to dictate all aspects of the pregnancy because that is the agreement. Um, but then that's clearly problematic because you want the surrogate to have her own reproductive autonomy and this is still her body. So then the surrogate should have rights. And then the fallout of that is that our laws are constantly pitting the surrogate's rights with the intended parent's rights and are inconsistently deciding who gets what right over the other person and when. And of course, the conclusion to all of this is the one person who doesn't have any rights, the one person who doesn't get a say, and the one person who's the law never actually works in their favor is the child involved in this. And the child is getting whatever leftover from whichever party is most powerful. And frankly, neither of the parties are solely looking out for the well-being of the child because there's so many other factors involved, even with the best of intentions. Wow. Yeah. Well, and the fact that you said 98% of surrogacies are for money, for pay, that makes me think too, you know, if we're able to... I think I've heard some people chatting about, couldn't we just make it so everything that's not altruistic gets banned to realize that that would take away 98% and probably huge. Cause I mean, this, the fertility industry is, it's safe to say billion dollar industry, right? So they're highly motivated to, to make this a thing and, and probably to lobby. And uh, we'll probably talk about in one of your article or in the article you wrote about Michigan, there's a lot of big 
organizations, especially um, more probably leaning Democratic, progressive, and LGBT that are very invested in the fertility industry and what is it, re reproductive justice and reproductive equality and things like that. Yeah, no, so you're exactly right on this. They're one of the biggest drivers in the reproductive technology space are LGBTQ couples and persons who want the right to have a child, require some sort of assistance outside themselves and are now not only pushing for the right to do that, but the right for um, health insurance companies to cover it or governments to give them subsidized um, tax returns or other benefits. And so Men Having Babies, um, a national organization devoted to men having children, um, who are oftentimes in same-sex relationships or just single men, um, they talk about this as fertility um, inclusion or fertility anti-discrimination. So if a heterosexual couple has the right to have a child because they are biologically able to do so, then same-sex male couples should have the right to have a child, um, and then they should have the right to IVF, and they should have the right to access a surrogate. Um, and so Illinois is actually the first and currently the only state to pass a law that redefines infertility to include anyone who needs an egg or sperm donor or an embryo, um, effectively meaning that, so like the traditional definition of infertility is if you're 35 and under, if you try to have a baby for a year and you don't conceive, then you're experiencing infertility. If you're over 35, it's just six months. The definition in Illinois now says if you're, a, um, if you're in need of any assistance an extra sperm or egg, what have you, then you're now also infertile, which means they can access Illinois' infertility insurance coverage to help pay for IVF. And now none of the laws uh, currently cover paying for the egg or the um, sperm, depending on what they're choosing to buy, or the embryo. So that's still up to the individual couple to pay for, and the law does not cover surrogacy. But it's certainly a step in that direction. And so now California, Wisconsin, and New York are all considering bills that would redefine infertility on a similar ground. And there have been federal bills to push to do the same thing, none of which have passed um, because the health insurance industry, uh, it would be a massive, massive cost to health insurance. And so most companies are opposing it. Um, but when it comes to those who are really trying to push reproductive technology and push surrogacy, it's typically people who... Um, um, it, it's typically not just a heterosexual couple who is unable to bear children. The larger push is coming from this new LGBTQ rise. Yeah. Well, we chatted about Senate Bill 729 out of California in one of our episodes in the past. And yeah, we talked about, you know, that means a woman by herself is now infertile. A man by himself is now infertile. And I looked it up today. That bill has stalled. They had, mm -hmm. a, they had a hearing on September 1st that I guess was postponed. Well, actually, it said that the bill is engrossed, and I had to look up what that means, which basically I think says it means it got a lot of TLC or a lot of people you know, going back and forth arguing about what it should say. Okay, so talk to us a little bit about what the studies say. Inevitably, if we're talking about this on social media or we're posting different things, um, you know, our comments to a couple that's celebrating buying their child, we get a lot of pushback. You know, you're being anti-gay. This is homophobic or transphobic or whatever, and or you are being insensitive to infertile couples. And there's a lot of it doesn't matter who the parents are, as long as there's loving people, adults, an adult in the child's life, it doesn't matter what happens to them otherwise. And a lot of aren't you just glad they're alive? So let's start with just what do kind of the studies say? Maybe what are the studies that people who are in favor of surrogacy, what are they putting forward? And then we'll talk a little bit about, you know, what do we, what can we actually see when we look at the data? 
Yeah, so for people who are wanting to cite studies showing that surrogacy is a positive or that surrogacy confers no harm on the child, the surrogate mother, or the intended parents, um, there are two primary studies that are cited. Um, so the first uh, is a systematic review by a datatician. I think his he's French. Um, his name is uh, Cremule Rousseau. I'm not French. Yeah, we'll post to the link and stuff. Yeah. We'll post the link. Um, so this French individual who in July of 2023 posted a long form sub stack, it's about 5,000 words long, where he does a systematic review um, of surrogacy. Now, the first 2,000 words or so are just looking at the facts related to surrogacy. When did surrogacy become a big deal? How do we define surrogacy? What is infertility? Um, and so that's all unobjectionable on its own. Um, it's just pretty straightforward. And then he spends about 2,000 words looking at all of the possible harms that surrogacy could confer. And so this includes all parties involved. So it, he actually spends a pretty short amount of time on each individual part, especially the harms to the child. And so his study looks at um, the birth rate of the baby, um, how, when were they born, what gestational age, um, is looking at some of the physical attributes um, related to the child. And then he also has a section where he's citing a few researchers who look at the psychological well-being um, or emotional impact on the child being born from surrogacy. And notably in this substack um, that is probably the one I see shared the most on social media, most of his studies actually come from the 1990s or early 2000s. And having just published that, that means that he's selectively drawing from rather old studies. And he begins the substack saying that surrogacy between 1999 and 2013 was actually incredibly rare, only making up about 2% of all births in the United States. Um, but since 2013, in the last decade, we know that surrogacy has really exploded. Um, we don't have exact numbers on what that looks like, but we know that more and more people are using surrogates and is becoming more and more popular. And so he doesn't cite practically any studies since 2013. So that in and of itself as a researcher uh, is striking and just a bit concerning because it means that we're really drawing from data before surrogacy was a big deal. And we're drawing from data from very limited data sets all across the world. Um, so it might be, you know, 15 people in the Netherlands or 10 families in Iran, but that doesn't really give us a full view of like what surrogacy is overall and the impact it may have. Um, not to mention any of the concerns within those individual studies. But then for psychological outcomes, he cites a longitudinal study by Susan Gollenbach, who is a researcher and was the head of the Center for Family Research in the UK for a very long time. And her study is probably the one most commonly cited in these systematic reviews, especially when it comes to the well-being of the children. Now, her project in the UK, um, she really started publishing and writing at least prominently in the 1990s, um, and being the head of the department has hundreds of peer-reviewed studies published to her name. Um, and her project, as it's described online, is to really explore new family forms um, and show that any form of family, whether you have two parents or three parents or a single parent, um, is actually good for the child as long as it's a healthy environment and they love the children and everyone's consented to what's happened. And so she began a longitudinal study of children born from IVF, from donor gametes, and from surrogacy. And she reviewed these families every year at age one, two, three, 
4, 7, and 14. So it covers um, the first 14 years of a child's life. Um, and she's ex she's especially gauging for the psychological well-being of the child. Now, what's so notable about this is first, um, this is the only study of its kind. It's the only longitudinal study looking at the impact of surrogacy on children. Um, it's one of the few studies, I mean, like it's, she says this in her papers that it's the only one, and I've seen that referenced elsewhere. I've not found another study that looks at the psychological well-being of children born from surrogacy, so I'm inclined to believe that. Um, so we have one study that is then repeated multiple times over their life assessing their well-being. What's so interesting about this is she started publishing it, I think in 2003. So the data was from a little bit before, and this came from the UK Office of National Statistics and Childlessness Overcome Through Surrogacy. And so she began, she got about a 60% response rate, and she began with, I think, 42 uh, couples born from surrogacy and every year the number declines. So by the time you reach age 14, there's only 28 families. So the entire basis for surrogacy is no harm to the psychological well-being of children that everyone cites comes from ultimately 28 children in the UK from one study or from one study, um, spread out over time through one researcher in the UK who has already said on her website that her goal is to show that there is no harms to unique forms of families. So if we're talking about research bias and like lots of concerns to have here, like this should set off just every researcher's warning bells of like, we should not take these results at face value. You should say, okay, we have the studies here, but we shouldn't just assume what she is saying is necessarily the truth. And what else is so, uh, fascinating about this concerning uh what have you is that for ages one two three four and seven she relies on the parents assessment of the child's well-being because the child is too young to give real answers and then i think at age seven she also relies on teacher assessment and she recognizes or makes note of the potential problems with this and then dismisses them and moves on, like all within one paragraph. And so the obvious problems with this are one, uh, parents who have a child through a surrogate, especially at this time when surrogacy wasn't probably very popular and probably still had a lot of people. I mean, there are a lot of people now who were like, oh, that, that's a little odd. Um, one, these parents likely have a vested interest in showing that their child is okay because they love their child, I, I genuinely think. And they don't want to know or think that the decision that they made in creating the child could somehow harm the child. Like, I can't imagine anything harder for a parent to admit. So these parents who are reporting the child's well-being already have likely the temptation or a vested interest in showing that surrogacy is totally fine and just like everything else. Two, in many cases, when a parent uses a surrogate, um, this is likely their first child. And so you also have parents who don't have any other prior experience with children. And so you really only have the context of your child to say, my child is doing fine. We're bonded. We're happy. Everything's okay. And so that's already a big problem because they don't really know. And, and, and it's really hard to know. I, I only have one child. So all of my experience and advice comes from the experience of one child that may or may not hold up for my other children. Like you have no idea. So that's a really big problem. And then the third problem, um, having read through all of these studies is that in every single case, she finds that children, every single case, except for one children born, 
uh, through surrogacy do just as well as any other children um, on their psychological well-being and their overall development in life, and that there are no harms associated with surrogacy. At one point, she says, we actually found that surrogate children have better relationships with their parents than natural born children, or surrogacy is actually better in this instance. And so she's very quick to draw these sorts of conclusions. Notably, at age seven, she actually finds that surrogate-born children do have worse outcomes than natural conceived children. Um, and this aligns with other developmental differences. But at age seven, there is a notable difference between surrogate-born children and those who aren't that largely seems to be resolved by age 14. Um, at age 14, she does interview the children through an assessment metric. Again, it's looking at psychological well-being. So you have to ask, like, what are they actually gauging for? Um, and so it's just very, they're very simplistic. And again, this is one study by one researcher in the UK. Um, yeah, and so that's where a lot of my pushback comes in for individuals who are like, see, we have no harms. Because then once you actually look at the studies available and look at what they're gauging for, the real conclusion here is that there is a big difference between no harms from surrogacy and no known harms. And right now, it seems that we're probably in the place that at best you could say the harms are unknown or unclear. Um, now, based on just like hard data research that's available, I, I think like the best you could say, and really there's a 2015 systematic review that basically comes to the same conclusion where they're like, listen, we don't have many studies on this. The best we can say is that we're not really sure, um, which means that there really is the call for researchers at universities to put together and conduct well-rounded and in-depth studies on surrogate-born children looking at more than just psychological well-being um, as described by the parents or psychological well-being described by this one period in time, because you also have to take into account for children born of surrogacy, what you're asking them to do is to say that there is something, somehow something wrong or bad in what their parents did to conceive them. And that's a lot of pressure to put on a child. Um, like the conflict of interest there is huge because again, learning to separate, I'm happy that I'm born but I'm unhappy with the circumstances with which I was born and created, knowing that your parents intentionally did so and invested a lot of time and money and effort into this process. It seems really unlikely that, like that's just a really complicated position to put a child in. Um, and this researcher, Susan Gollenbach, actually has another study looking at the well-being of surrogate children in particular at age 10. And what's so interesting is she does include um, interviews with the children and she has four categories. It's like positive, um, somewhat positive, ambivalent and indifferent, which seem more like synonyms in a thesaurus than they do like four distinct categories. She does not have a column for children who were unhappy with it, even though she's interviewing supposedly many children. And on top of that, um, she only includes like two or three quotes per section, even though the sample size was much larger. So again, it seems like there are a lot of stories that are not being told here and a lot of perspectives that we haven't adequately tested for. And if this seems like a flyby uh, summary, it's it, it's because it, it's not, well, let me rephrase. If this, yeah, this is not just a flyby summary. This is just how little we actually know from data about the well-being. What's really concerning about this is that we do have countless studies when it comes to um, family structure and the impact on the emotional, educational, behavioral, psychological 
um, spiritual well-being of children. And Susan Golombic's study only looks at the psychological. It doesn't even address any of these other measures um, of well-being for children. But we do know that all of these different family forms um, do impact a child. None of those studies are taken into account, even though they ought to be when it when we look at surrogacy in particular. Um, so that's just sort of like, yeah, that, that's the sort of overview of what we know, which is really we don't know very much because this is such a new practice. So we have a lot of research to go before we could even come to any strong conclusions based on the studies we have available. Uh, this is a little bit of an aside, but I don't know if you're familiar at all with Penn University right? Penn, not Penn College, Penn University. So they had some controversy recently and had a little bit of a change in leadership. But I just read yesterday, they posted basically a new constitution for Penn. One of the big things was there needs to be ideological diversity and that their administration and the people at the top need to basically be neutral when it comes to political statements and all these sorts of things. But they had a few points in their constitution about research like we need to be about rigorous research and finding where the truth leads us instead of doing ideological things, which is kind of exciting as you're chatting. You know, maybe there's going to be maybe someone listening to this. If you're going to Penn, go get us some more research on surrogacy and some outcomes for kids. I was curious, and this is just I'm springing on this on you out of the blue, but do you have any sense or do we know at all a number of like how many kids born from surrogacy is there in the United States right now? So it's like 300 million ish people. Do we have any sense of, of how many there are? Short answer is no. I have, well, short answer is no, not that I know of. Um, someone else may have a study or may have a rough estimate, but I am not sure. And surrogacy reporting is really tricky. Um, so I've actually tried looking into this on a number of occasions. Um, and so for California, for example, surrogacy contracts are filed with individual surrogacy agencies. And then those agencies are required to file a copy of the surrogacy contract to the Department of Health and Human Services. Once it's filed in the Department of Health and Human Services, it is locked, sealed, and gone. Like the law explicitly says you don't have the right to access this even for research purposes. And so finding real numbers numbers on surrogacy outcomes is nearly impossible because there are no federal laws governing this. There are no federal databases that give us um, information. And so individual clinics know their numbers. And then some of the fertility organizations like American Society for Reproductive Medicine or the um, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology, SART, um, they do track um, gestational cycles, I think, but gestational cycles only refers to the attempted number of tries, not the actual outcome. And so again, any data that we would have would have to be an estimate because of how difficult it is. So just again, one of the like, if you're on the fence about surrogacy, we should at least be able to agree that we should have tracking in place. We should know how many children are being born from surrogacy. Um, because for example, um, Susan Gollenbach, she's pulling her data from a UK office that tracks the number of families um, using surrogacy every year. And so the United States does not have the same sort of option available. So when it comes to researchers in the United States who can and should study surrogacy, it's really difficult to actually find your, uh, to find a pool of surrogates. And so oftentimes they're having to rely on targeted ads or potentially information from the Society for Reproductive, Assisted Reproductive Technology. But again, there's selection bias. Um, there's bias about who are the sorts of families that are most likely to want to participate in the study, usually people who want to show that there's a positive outcome. 
And so having even just some sort of data uh, like requirement that you uh, log this data on a national level is such a huge need because we know that it's happening a ton, that there are that there are billions of dollars in this industry worldwide, um, tons in the United States in particular. The fact that we have so little information about who the children are, who these parents are, and how many times this is happening is a massive problem that no other industry that I can think of has so few reporting for such an important um, and consequential medical procedure. Right. Well, and human life being bought and sold in essence, right? Yeah. Hey, everyone. All of us at the Them Before Us team want to wish you a Merry Christmas, and we hope you're having the best holiday season ever. We are in the middle of our year-end giving campaign, so if you've appreciated the podcast or any of our other Them Before Us resources and you'd like to be a part of this movement financially, you can go to thembeforeus.com and make a one-time or reoccurring donation and help us take this work all over the globe. We have amazing projects coming for 2024, and we hope you will join us. Thanks so much. Well, okay. And, and this is, again, this is more of a broad question, but so for us lay people, let's say, you know, someone posts a study, surrogacy is great. It's totally fine. What are some good things for us to look at as we, you know, let's go actually click on the study. What are the things for us to look for that will help us know if the study is actually saying it's good, this is good or bad? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so these are things that may seem overwhelming, but are actually usually accessible on the first page of the study or easy to find if you scroll down to the results or discussion section. So the first thing you should look at is what was the year that this was published in? Two, what was the sample size? How many surrogate born children, how many surrogate families are they actually drawing from for the data? Three, what is the comparison group? Um, for example, in many of Susan Gollenbach's studies, she's comparing surrogate-born children with IVF-born uh, children, with donor-conceived children, with natural-conceived children. Um, she never says that the natural-conceived families that she's comparing this data to remains the same throughout all the studies. And it seems that they might actually be different families. And while she says that she tried to select families who were the most similar class-wise, Again, it, there's not a detailed explanation. It's kind of like a one sentence explanation in the first study. And so all of her findings are based on comparisons and the comparison group is super unclear. Um, so we really like, you can have drastically different outcomes based on comparison, right? Like if the people you're comparing them to are drug dealers who are terrible parents, of course your surrogate born children are probably doing good because in order to afford surrogacy, you're probably going to be rather wealthy, which is going to have, you know, correspond with much better outcomes. So look at who the comparison group is and see how that's selected. Because again, if it's based on comparison, that's a huge make or break in the results. Um, the other thing that I would say to look for beyond sample size um, would be to see what they're actually testing for. Um, a lot of times when studies say that there are no harms, they're just looking at the physical well-being of children. So the birth rate, the gestational age at birth, um, were there any complications, that sort of thing. And while those are certainly very important, um, and certainly very important for the development of the child. I think you and I can both agree that that's not ultimately the most important thing that we're concerned about here and that there are, are a lot of other factors that need to be accounted for, um, such as their psychological and emotional well-being, the kind of relationship they have with the parents, um, 
And then not to mention just their overall behavioral outcomes or educational outcomes, um, their chances at future marriage or their desire to have children, right? Like if every surrogate born person doesn't want to have children because of a negative association, this is actually a huge problem because we, one, babies are awesome and we want people to want babies, but two, we're kind of in a big fertility decline and like we actually need people to want to have babies. And so we need to know what we're actually, what we're actually testing for here. What, what are the grounds by which they say there are no harms? Um, and, and to that point, usually they mean we didn't find anything necessarily negative, but saying we couldn't find anything negative is not the same as we found things that are positive. And so a lot of times the studies are really just saying this is a neutral outcome. Um, so those are the sort of basic things I would say to look for. And depending on what you find there, that will help you, that, that will help gauge you one direction for another of like, is this a serious study that like they can draw this sort of conclusion from? Or are there actually a lot of concerns just based on these like top line things um, that warrant some pushback from person reading it from the person responding? That's good. Yeah. And all of us can read those, you know, I think it's like the abstract at the top will kind of summarize or the results and, and you'll get some of the, some of that information, at least if someone's trying to post a link just to sort of shut you up, you can just ask questions. Well, what was the sample size? You know, sometimes the links or the studies are behind a paywall and, you know, different things. So just ask questions. Yeah. Yeah. Even a paywall study shows the abstract though, and okay. should show the important information. So you might not get all the answers, but even paywall studies will give you something or like the first page of it, that sort of thing. So yeah. Awesome. All right. I'd love to shift just in our last few minutes to the article you wrote about Michigan. Um, this was published in World Magazine today, which is the 20th. And um, I'll do a shameless plug for World Magazine. I love World. It's kind of a Christian news magazine. And I think very sharp, very well done. And I think they do a lot of really great journalism. Okay. So I'll just read some of the highlights and then I'd love to just hear any additional comments from you. But um, okay. So in November, Michigan's House of Representatives voted to pass the state's first Assisted Reproduction and Surrogacy Parentage Act. So this doesn't mean it's actually a law. It just means it passed in the House, right? Is that what we know so far? It hasn't become a law yet. No, I think, no, it's become a law officially. Oh, okay, wow. Because I know with California, you know, it kind of stalled, but it was, a, it was a House bill for a while. Okay, so this is a new law in Michigan. All right, this isn't about altruistic or unpaid surrogacy, which were already legal. So, right, it's that 2%. This is legalizing and talking about that other... 98%. So um, this refers to a legal contract in which anyone, including those who could conceive and bear children on their own, can now hire a woman to gestate their child for a fee. Even if a child did want to learn who gave birth to him or her, you wouldn't be able to find out on their birth certificate. We've talked about this quite a bit, that birth certificates now basically are adult wish fulfillment. They're not actually giving meaningful information to the child like hey when i'm an adult will i be able to know who my biological mother and my biological father are they now just basically list out the adults that wanted the kid and they take off the other information uh you have some background for surrogacy previously in michigan so this was interesting things to me so in 1988, all surrogacy contracts were void and unenforceable in Michigan. And so, you know, about 20 plus years later, they, you know, in 2022, they passed the right to reproductive freedom constitutional amendment. And that takes, it takes some effort to get things changed in the constitution of a state constitution. This came up in a few of the articles I read from you. 
um, more of the progressive and Democrat side are definitely trying to frame this as a right. This is a human right. You know, um, we've talked about this in previous episodes as well. Um, we can, I can link back to it, but we have the three rules that make it a right kind of test. You know, first of all, if the government has to make a law saying you get it and someone else has to pay for it, we know it's not a natural right. And they manage to ignore the child's natural right in order to do all these things. So, but that's a way to make it very palatable, I think, to people who feel compassionate. Hey, I want someone who wants to have kids to have a kid. Yeah, it's a right. Reproductive justice, reproductive equality. It shouldn't discriminate. And you point out what's discriminating against you is your biology, right? Two men, two women not capable of having a child together. A woman alone, a man alone are not capable of having a child together. That's the discrimination. And maybe speak to this because I did have a question about this. So it says, past presumably to protect abortion, this amendment also enabled lawmakers to pass this surrogacy act, which leaves Nebraska and Louisiana as the only two states that refuse to enforce commercial surrogacy contracts. So does that mean the other 48 states already have something allowing it? Or maybe like you said, they just don't have anything about it at all? Yes. So I apologize. I heard your clarification a second ago. So to clarify, it has passed the House in okay. Michigan, and we're waiting for um, other Senate votes to come. Um, but yes, when it comes to Nebraska, for example, they don't have a law on the books that allows for commercial surrogacy, though altruistic surrogacy is allowed. And then when it comes to Louisiana, uh, commercial surrogacy is not allowed and altruistic surrogacy is only allowed between heterosexual married couples. Oh. Um, so Louisiana, Louisiana actually has like, if you're going to have surrogacy, they have, I think probably the most pro family version of it where it's restricted to, um, voluntary, voluntary surrogacy. So there's not a conflict of interest with the um, financial factor. And then it's kept between mother, father, families, um, who are, based on many studies, the ones who are most ideal to raise the child. It's, we talk about, you do a great job of kind of summarizing um, or kind of including all the ways this violates the child's rights. You know, we talked, you talk about abortion a little bit and, um, and you include things like, so the surrogate mother, far from a mere carrier that the law reduces her to, is the first mother this child will ever know. We talk about that a ton. You know, the woman's body is designed to care for this baby and then it's severed right at birth and the baby is handed to someone else and some money is exchanged the idea that this is not considered baby selling or human trafficking and in kind of that traditional sense of with money being exchanged is pretty crazy and and i love this line if she had trouble distancing herself from the baby how can one expect the baby bond to be left. A surrogate can have a hundred of relationships, all different sorts of people they know and love and care about them. But at birth, that baby only knows one human being in the entire world. And it's that mother that held them for nine months and they're taken away from them. And we see a lot of these stories. And you talk about an article of the mom that changes her mind and doesn't want to let the baby go or you know, the family, the men, two men want to abort the baby because the baby has special needs. And the mom says, well, I want to keep the baby then and is not allowed to, or is told not to, because she has this bond. I thought this was a really great line too. The two, the mom and the baby, share life-enhancing DNA. In one case, leftover fetal cells from a woman's own aborted baby helped rebuild a portion of her cancer-ridden liver two decades later. Life-saving fetal cells from the preborn child remained with the mother, 
even while she chose a procedure to kill the child. What's so wild on this point is there's a lot of uh, discourse on, oh, the surrogate is has no um, biological connection to the child. And this is actually not true. While she doesn't have maybe a huge biological connection through this process you're referencing, fetal microchimerism, babies and the mother necessarily share blood cell DNA with one another. So even if it's not enough to change the genetic makeup of the child, it is certainly enough that you can find the blood cells, um, a DNA from this woman, from this child, even decades later. And what's really funny is I found on one surrogacy website, one of their selling points for why you should become a surrogate was so that you could get these fetal cells into your body because fetal blood cells are associated with anti-aging and with all of these other positive measures. So they were like, become a surrogate. You're not really biologically connected, but also the part of the baby's DNA that does stay in you helps you stay, uh, look younger for longer. And it was just hilarious. Um, because like, this is just, just such a bizarre, bizarre industry that we're talking about here. We, you point out in Michigan, they do have some rules. Uh, let's see the surrogate mother has to be at least 21 years old. Wow. That's nice. So she can drink and she can hold a baby for someone else. She has to previously given birth to at least one child. That's interesting, probably because they're trying to, they don't want this to be the very first time you got pregnant because maybe there's additional complications. I mean, is that riskier investment in some way? Yes. So pretty much every state requires the surrogate to have successfully given birth to at least one child beforehand. And the reason for that is primarily you want to see that the woman's body can handle carrying the child and birthing a child with a few complications. So in some instances, if the surrogate has had uh, C-sections for her children, she may not be eligible. Um, and she's certainly not an ideal candidate to be a surrogate because of the complications that poses, um, or if she gains some sort of like genetic disease or has just like really, really bad pregnancies um, through some sort of complication. They want to know about that beforehand. Um, but the other reason is it's a way of trying to protect against um, surrogate bonding. So while the surrogate, um, if the surrogate has another child or multiple children at home, the hope is that while she may be sad about giving away the baby, that she'll have other children at home that she can turn her maternal affection toward. And so that you're not taking a child from a woman who has no other children, which would be much harder, but you're taking the child and then returning her to her children to sort of like fill that wound. So again, it's sort of the acknowledgement of exactly what we're talking about, but not but enough where they want to change. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's assuming that contracts can actually change human nature, um, which we know is just not the case. Consent only goes so far. Contracts only go so far, but eventually the natural bonds and affections, especially between a mother and the child um, are, are something that cannot be changed simply because of words on a page. Right. Yeah, we finish, you finish this article. Anyone with enough money to afford it can use this technology to create a child. Laws like the one passed in Michigan or passed in the house encourage women to unnaturally distance themselves from the children they bear, the child they bear. This surrogacy act turns both children and surrogate mothers into mere means to someone else's fertility goals. Yeah, and it's, I mean, this is kind of the, we're seeing, it's not the start, there's been many bills and things over time, but it does feel like this very significant uptick. And we're, especially maybe the conservatives who are trying to help people think about it ethically, it's like we're trying to play catch up to an industry that's already, you know, billions of dollars ahead of us.
Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And going back to one thing about the mother-child bond that I think is so incredible for the child's perspective, um, the child learns the surrogate mother's voice. Um, the child learns um, the environment. So maternal um, stress levels actually shape the disposition of the child. So women who tend to be higher stress or have more complicated pregnancies, birth children who are more irritable or more high strung. Um, so there's already an environmental factor that's actually shaping the epigenetics of this child. But the one thing that I, I learned in being pregnant this um, actually last year now um, that I thought was just so incredible is the amniotic fluid that's within the womb that the baby is eating and drinking um, throughout pregnancy has the exact same scent as colostrum, which is the initial breast milk that mothers produce. So that when the child comes out of the womb and is in this whole new environment that's completely unknown to the child, they're able to be laid on the mother's chest and then they smell the colostrum right there from her breast that smell the exact same as the environment that they were gestated in, which is just one of nature's incredible ways of reassuring the child and saying, look, this smells familiar. This is familiar. This is the person that you have known for all nine of these months. And that's just an incredible biological um, reflection of that intimate bond between mother and child that is utterly severed in surrogacy, such that the child doesn't have any indication that nature naturally builds in that this is a safe environment and that this indeed is his mother, that this is his parents. Right. Yeah. And we talk about a lot in, we, in our last episode, even the difference between surrogacy and adoption and, um, adoption, this will happen. A child might be taken away at birth, but it's a tragedy. It's because of other circumstances. The mom does not feel like she can care for, or sometimes parental rights are stripped away by the government. And there's a lot of hoops to go through, but we're talking about intentionally doing something for money. And that's very different. Huge difference because as Katie has made this point hundreds of times that in adoption, the law is in place to ensure that money never changes hands between the intended parents and the birth mother. And yet in surrogacy. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. In adoption, um, in adoption, the law ensures that no money changes hands between the intended parents and the birth mother. But in surrogacy, that is the very foundation of the agreement that those parents will be paying the mother a large sum of money to achieve those ends. And I would have to look at individual states to say this, but for California, um, for example, there are no requirements that the parents go through a psychological screening, screening, a background check, um, a home visit, or any sort of measure to ensure that the child is going to a safe home. In fact, if you look at surrogacy pages in California, at least, for the requirements of the parents, the very first thing they list is that surrogacy agencies ensure that the parents have enough money to pay for this whole thing. And sometimes they may require the parents to go through a psychological screening, um, but it is not required by law for parents to do so. Um, and so in the case of Michigan and many other states, again, this doesn't mean that everyone seeking a surrogate is bad or crazy or um, hopes to somehow harm the child. I, in no way do I think that. But where laws allow for abuse, people abuse. 
even when laws don't allow for abuse, people abuse, right? Um, but to say that we have laws in place that aren't doing the bare minimum at providing legal protections for these children is just absolutely insane. And it's totally unlike our adoption laws. It's totally unlike our foster care laws. It's totally unlike our organ donation laws that all have very strict and very precise limitations in place. Um, so again, the fact that our surrogacy laws are consistently pushing for permissive outcomes that are not looking out for the well-being of the children or the intentions of the parents is, is just utterly bizarre by comparison. Awesome. There's so many good things to think about. Um, I'll post links to the guy we mentioned, the French guy and your world article. And thanks for giving us so much to think about and for all your work, Emma. Absolutely. Thank Whether you are religious or irreligious, whether you are single, married, gay, or straight, if you are defending the rights of children, you are one of us. Thanks for joining this global movement to put them, the children, before us, the adults.